Our Father, you have given to us the honor and the privilege of coming before the King of Kings with our requests. In fact, you have commanded us to bring our requests before you. And so we do so this day, acknowledging you as our sovereign, our Savior. And we ask that you might guide our thoughts today, that you will keep our hearts in right relationship with you. You will focus our attention on what you would be saying to us. We ask, Lord, for your special blessing during this hour here. And then, Father, I pray that throughout this Sunday school this morning, as the Word of God is taught from the nursery age all the way through the senior citizens, that the power of God will be manifested. Lord, we know that in our flesh there dwells no good thing. It is only by the Spirit of God that the work of God is accomplished. And so we submit to His authority and pray that He will have His way this morning throughout this complex. And Father, as the service is going on right now, that you will speak through your word there too, and that you might be honored and glorified. Touch, Lord, those that are not able to be with us today because of illness, and we'll thank you for all that you do in Christ's name. Amen. All right, if you'll turn to the 50th chapter of Genesis, Genesis chapter 50, I'd like to read verses 15 through 21. Verses 15 through 21. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, What if Joseph should bear a grudge against us and pay us back in full for all the wrong which we did to him? So they sent a message to Joseph, saying, Your father charged before he died, saying, Thus you shall say to Joseph, Please forgive, I beg you, the transgression of your brothers and their sin, for they did you wrong. Now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Then his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for am I in God's place? And as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result, to preserve many people alive. So therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. So he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. As we noted last week from the 12th chapter of Revelation, Satan is referred to as the accuser of the brethren. And for you and for me to know that uh, he is constantly seeking to intimidate and to tear down and to destroy and to accuse us before God himself. Satan, as the accuser of the brethren, was able to open an old wound in the hearts of these brothers. This, this feeling of guilt for what they had done to Joseph so many years before. I, I think that the wound was relatively easily opened because they themselves knew their own hearts. And I think they felt that if they had done, if it had been done to them what they did to Joseph, they were not certain at all that they could forgive the person who had done that to them. I think it's not hard for us to understand that feeling because sometimes I think we have a hard time believing 1 John 1, 9. It's such a simple verse. 
if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive. It's, you know, how, how do we accept forgiveness merely on the basis of a confession? It doesn't seem enough. You know, in the flesh, it seems like we ought to do more than just confess. That we ought to expect punishment from God, at least, for the evil which we have done. Or that we ought to do something. You know, we ought to do something for God in order to feel like we can actually be forgiven. And, and over time, this has impacted even the church. And, and through the centuries, the church developed what are really pagan ideas of penance and indulgences and things which, by which man can kind of earn God's forgiveness. When the Bible clearly says there's no way you can earn God's forgiveness. There's not a thing you can do to bring about God's forgiveness. It's a free gift upon confession from the heart, of course. Not just words from the mouth, but a real expression of heart felt sincerity that God then grants forgiveness because we can't do enough to earn God's forgiveness. There is nothing we can do. We can climb the highest mountain on our knees. Uh, we, we can sleep on a bed of nails for 16 weeks. I mean, whatever we do isn't going to make God forgive us our sin. And, and you look at the religions of the world, you look at Hinduism and Buddhism and these different religions, they're all based on this idea of earning God's favor. You probably have seen the or photographs of, of Hindu parades where these Hindus are parading through the streets and they're beating themselves, you know, trying to earn some kind of honor from God or something. And that's human. That's di diabolic. It's not of God at all. And yet we can understand that, I think, because I think every one of us has had the sense that I am so guilty, how can I just go to God and confess and, and be cleansed and forget it? You know, it's got to be something I've got to do. And, and sometimes we carry that burden around. So it's not really hard for us to understand how these brothers could have this wound opened again. How easy it would be to accuse them and for them to say, yeah, we were really, really mean and awful. And uh, Joseph has every right to carry a grudge against us. But I hope that through our belief in the Word of God and through our walk with God through the years that each of us has, has walked, that we are enabled to be like Joseph rather than to be as the brothers, to be men and women who are able to forgive and to accept forgiveness. And when hardship comes along, not to be bitter, but to be Christ-like. And, and to reflect that, as Joseph did. I mean, Joseph had every right to say, you guys did me such wrong, I'm going to get, get you. And he had the power to do it, of course. But uh, he didn't. He forgave them. And in fact, as we read in this passage this morning, the genuineness of Joseph's forgiveness of his brothers and of his love for them was seen in the fact that it says he wept. He wept when he read the note, when he read this letter from his brothers. He wept. Oh, have they not accepted my forgiveness? Have they not understood? I mean, they've been living here for nearly 20 years now. Have they have not realized that I have forgiven them? And of course, Joseph was reflecting the forgiveness of God in the process. Now, in, in this passage, we're told that in verse 17, that the, the word is used there is they. 
uh, which may indicate that more than one brother was actually involved in delivering this message. I mentioned last time that the message was probably sent via Benjamin, because Benjamin would be the one that would be most likely to be accepted by Joseph, because he was his full-blood brother. But there's the, the wording here may indicate that more than one brother was involved. But not all of them, as the passage seems to indicate. Because it says in verse 18, Then his brothers also came, indicating that after the message was sent and received, that the rest of the brothers came to see Joseph. Now, did they wait? Did they wait until the message was delivered? Did they wait beyond the delivery of the message to see how, what Joseph's reaction would be before they came? Or did they send the message and plan to arrive shortly after the message to kind of reinforce the impact of the message? Well, we can't really tell from the wording here. But whatever the case, we're told that they prostrated themselves before their brother Joseph pledging their allegiance to him and their service. Thirty years before, they couldn't even dream of such an action. Remember what they did to Joseph, how they ridiculed him when he had these dreams? Well, we were out and, and we, were, we were harvesting wheat and, and my sheaf stood up and uh, your sheafs all came around me and bowed down. And the brother said, are we going to bow down to you, you little sniveling shrimp? <laughs> it's not in the scripture, but, you know, that's probably the attitude. <laughs> it's probably the attitude they had. You can understand it. You all were kids, as I was. And you know how kids talk. Of course, they weren't exactly kids. They were, you know, late teens, early 20s. Often still talk like that. But... Here they are, and are they grudgingly bowing before Joseph? I don't think so. <laughs> I think they're willingly doing it, you know. Bowing before Joseph and pledging him, sincerely pledging him their homage. I don't think Joseph was having any delight in that at all. His godliness was revealed in his compassion on his brothers. All he felt towards his brothers was not a desire for retribution, was not pride at having all his brothers bowing before him, looking down and kind of snickering under his false beard. No, I don't think so. I, I think that all he felt towards those men was compassion. Compassion. And the more we are like Christ, the more we become people of compassion. Because Jesus Christ is a God of compassion. In Matthew 9, we read this. Jesus was going about healing every kind of disease. And then the scripture says, and seeing the multitude, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and downcast like sheep without a shepherd. The Lord looks beyond what we see. When we see somebody in, in their need, we think, yeah, but you know, this guy has done stupid things and that's why he's in this financial crisis or, or she's done this and that's why this has happened. And we, we tend to rationalize things. But Jesus just looked out on the crowd and he felt compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. You know, we read about the tragedy, for example, that just happened a few blocks from us the other day when 
when this one athlete shot this other one, you all read it in the paper, I suppose, or shot two others. And, and you think, sheep without a shepherd. I mean, people have no concept of what life is all about. They have no concept of eternal life or of a God before whom they must stand. And trite little things in this world lead to disaster. I mean, things that really don't matter in the long run cause people to do, you know, horrible things that have eternal ramifications. Compassion. Jesus had compassion. And one of the things, one of the characteristics that you and I must develop in our lives as we walk with the Lord is compassion. We read from 1 Peter. And probably you've noticed that compassion is not a natural human trait. People are more likely to have compassion on a wounded dog than they are on another person. Ever notice that? 1 Peter 3. Peter, of course, is talking about relationships primarily between husbands and wives here, but it, it goes beyond that as we read verse 8. To sum up, let all be harmonious sympathetic, and that word can be translated compassionate because that's what it means. Brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit. Not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. We're here to inherit a blessing. And we should draw as many as possible in to inherit that blessing with us. And we sure don't do it if we return insult for insult. And that's sure easy to do, isn't it? Our natural human reaction is, if somebody insults us, is not to say, oh, I'm, I'm really sorry you feel that way, but I really love you. <laughs> Our natural reaction is to think of a way to insult them back. And usually that's not too hard to think of one, because there seem to be plenty of reasons to do it. But this is the sum of it all, Peter is saying. To, to live in, a, in harmony. To be compassionate. Kind-hearted. And notice, humble in spirit. Now, if we're really humble in spirit, we won't yield to that natural tendency to cast an insult when we receive an insult. Because to do so is an act of arrogance, not of humility. And we all struggle with that. I don't care how many years we walk with the Lord. It's still a struggle. But the more we walk with the Lord, hopefully the more quickly we will respond in a Christ-like manner. Now, on the opposite side of the coin, we have a passage in 1 John chapter 3, which indicates that if we don't have compassion, if we are not compassionate people, then we are without the love of God. 1 John chapter 3, verse 17. But whoever has the world's goods and beholds his brother in need and closes his heart against him, in other words, has, his, has no compassion, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. Uh, that, that passage has always been such a profound passage to me. We're not to, we're, you know, we're not to love just in word or with the expressions of the tongue, but in deed and truth. 
It's, it's not our talk, it's our walk that's going to truly express the compassion of God. You know, as Jesus said back in the Gospels, it doesn't do any good to tell somebody to be warmed and be filled and do nothing to help them. There's no compassion there. There's just arrogance. So Joseph was a man of great compassion. Where did he get that compassion? Was it naturally within him? Certainly it was not. It came from his walk with God. It came from a difficult walk. And, and we've already rehearsed all the things that happened to Joseph. Sure, now he's prime minister. And he'll be prime minister of the most powerful land in, in the world at that time for maybe 80 years. But getting to that place was a very, very difficult road for a young man. And he had been humbled time after time. And out of that humbling did not come a desire to, to show everybody how great he was, but came a true humility that was implanted in his heart by God himself and a true compassion that was planted in his heart by God himself. And that's the only way you and I will have humility. It's the only way you and I will have compassion if God plants it in our hearts. And God will do that as we seek it, as we pray, and as we study his word. Because if we don't study his word, we don't know what the mind of the Lord is because this is the expression of the mind of the Lord. And it's hard. <laughs> you read through the scripture and you think, well, this isn't the way I think in the flesh, and it isn't. Well, Joseph comforted his brothers. He told them not to fear. After all, who was he that he should try to alter the will of God? He says, you may have meant it for evil, but God used it for great good. And that's the story of the human race. You may have meant it for evil, but God turned it for good. And even though it's really difficult to see the hand of God at every moment in the course of human history, we can still understand by faith that God has been at work. Why does God allow an Adolf Hitler to arise to power? But out of it, God brings good. Certainly, the nation of Germany has not become a Christian nation as a result. And there were millions of Jews who paid a horrible price because that man came to power. But we have to believe that God in his, in his great wisdom has brought good out of that. And certainly there are testimonies from thousands of people of what God has done uh, as a result. The expressions of, of people like Corrie Ten Boom and what she did and how that has gone out all over the world in, in film and in print. And, and that's repeated thousands of times over. We, we cannot analyze it all and put it right there and say, now this is the result. But we, we see little points of it sticking up here and there. And, and we trust through faith that God knows what he's doing. Joseph was essentially saying to his brothers what Jesus said on the cross when he said, Father, forgive them because they do not know what they're doing. That's one of the greatest, that's certainly the greatest expression of forgiveness ever in history. As Jesus, dying on the cross, looked down at the people who had been responsible for this, and he said, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. 
In verse 20 of the passage in Genesis 50, And as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result, to preserve many people alive. This is a statement of the sovereignty of God. God is sovereign. God reigns supreme. God is not surprised about the events which transpire. And God allowed his child to suffer. He, he understood what Joseph was going through and he allowed it to take place. This, what seemed to be a tragedy. I mean, if all we had seen was that moment when Joseph was sold to the Midianites and taken off, we'd say, oh, what a tragedy. And, and then when we would have seen him as a slave of slaves in Egypt, what a tragedy. In prison, what a tragedy. Left to rot after the, you know, the butler had gone on and, and served Pharaoh for two years without ever telling Pharaoh about what Joseph had done. What a tragedy. We would say that over and over again. But God allowed it to happen to bring about a greater good. Thus, when things happen to us that we cannot comprehend, why has God allowed this tragedy in my life? We have to realize it's because God intends through it a greater good. We may not ever understand that greater good in this life. We may only see it one day when God runs that celestial video by or whatever he's going to do to, to show us what he was doing and why he was doing it. In the meantime, the just must live by faith. The concept in this verse is very, very parallel to that involving Jesus as he was nailed to the cross. The Sadducees, the priests, the howling mob meant his death to destroy a perceived threat. He was a threat to the religious system of that day. And they thought they were doing right to destroy him. But God allowed this, what appeared to be a tragedy, this wonderful man who went about doing good, who could feed the 5,000, who could heal the sick and the, and, the, and the lame. And then for him to die for no reason on a cross, such a tragic death, that, that's, you know, great tragedy in the eyes of human beings. But God allowed it for a greater good to preserve many people alive for eternity. In Joseph's day, many would be preserved alive in this life. The, the, the family of Jacob, the millions or however many Egyptians were living at that time, they were preserved alive for a longer period of time than otherwise. But in Jesus' case, it was, of course, to preserve many people eternally alive. To preserve for himself a people, which we call, which the scripture calls, the church. You and I are part of a remnant the few that have trusted, the 7,000 that have not bowed the knee to Baal, so to speak. As Joseph forgave his brothers, so Jesus, in a much greater way, forgave his crucifiers. While he was in the pain of death, he forgave his crucifiers. How has it been that through the nearly 2,000 years of history since that time, 
that so many who name the name of Jesus have not been able to do likewise. So many have not understood Jesus' words in John chapter 10. John chapter 10, verses 17 and 18. The Jewish people have borne the brunt of Jesus' death ever since it occurred. But Jesus said this, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. No one has ever at any time had any right to blame anyone for Jesus' death. Because Jesus gave his life. It wasn't taken from him. On his own initiative, he yielded his life. That's why he could say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And yet the church in certain ages and in certain elements of the church, has refused to do this, refused to forgive the crucifiers of Jesus. And the Jews have been called Christ killers. More in the medieval world, I suppose, and even since that time, than today or earlier, but nevertheless, too much of church history. Hundreds of thousands of Jews have died in crusades and pogroms in the past millennium. God alone knows how many. If you've ever read the story of the first crusade, which was launched in 1095, you know, the crusaders, as, as they marched out of France over towards the Holy Land, they went with the saying, God wills it. And on their way, as they entered certain cities, they went amok amongst the Jewish ghetto of that city. And thousands of Jews died in the cities of Europe before the Crusaders ever got to the Bosporus and across into Asia Minor. It was a tragedy. They even killed other, quote, Christians in southeastern Europe because they were not Catholic Christians, they were Orthodox. <laughs> All of this in the name of Jesus. This lack of forgiveness and compassion has served to prove, I think, that many of those, including some of the highest leaders of the church, have not possessed the love of Christ. And I think it's because they're not his followers, not his true disciples. Oh, they held the position, but there was no reality to their relationship with God. And the church today, Protestant, Catholic, Orthodox, wherever you look at it, is shot full of people who hold positions of authority, but they don't know the God whom they claim to serve. Jesus said in Matthew 7, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. The true followers of Christ are those who do the will of God, not those who profess that they're Christians and hold some kind of a position, but those who do the will of God. That makes a very, very big difference. It's easy to say, it's harder to do. In the fifth chapter of Matthew, Jesus said, 
love your enemies, and pray for those who persecute you. And so Jesus did for those who crucified him. Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. If Jesus asked the Father to forgive someone, are they forgiven? I should hope so. <laughs> so what right has anyone else had to hold a supposed sin against someone whom God has forgiven? And our position as followers of Jesus is to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us. Not persecute them, not send a crusade against them, to kill them, but to love them and to pray for them. It's hard. It's just not natural human inclination. And that's been the problem of the church throughout the ages. Too much human and not enough God at work. And that's why we today need to be sure that as we serve within the church, we're doing so for God's reasons and not for human reasons. Well, Joseph comforted his brothers. He allayed their fears. In verse 21, it says, He spoke kindly to them. Now, the literal Hebrew there is, He spoke to their hearts. He spoke to their hearts. Now, the, the term in Hebrew that's translated heart can literally mean the organ. You know, thump, thump, thump. We hope, anyway, thump, thump, thump in there. But the Hebrews were, used that same word to mean the soul or the personality of a person. And so do we here in our society. And we have come to use the term in the same sense. We say, we say I have taken Jesus Christ into my heart. And of course, everybody, I hope, understands we don't mean into that organ in there, but into the core of our being, into our soul, into the very center of who we are. And so Joseph was speaking to the very core of his brothers, right down to their hearts, speaking kindly out of compassion to the depth of who they were, so that they might experience what? Shalom. That, that wonderful peace of God that comes only through the power and forgiveness of God. In order for Joseph to be able to speak to their, his brother's hearts, they had to believe what he said and to trust him to be true to his word. 50th chapter of Genesis, verse 22. Now Joseph stayed in Egypt, he and his father's household, and Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw the third generation of Ephraim's sons, also the sons of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were born on Joseph's knees. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will surely take care of you and bring you up from this land to the land which he promised on oath to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely take care of you, and you shall carry my bones up from here. So Joseph died at the age of 110 years, and he was embalmed and placed in a coffin in Egypt. You didn't think we'd ever get there, did you? <laughs> well, we won't get there today. 
too many things to say about this, but we'll finish next week for sure. The death of Joseph. We've read of the death of Abraham, the death of Isaac, the death of Jacob, and now the death of Joseph. When we think about death, we often consider it to be really a hard thing, something maybe even to be afraid of. Hopefully as Christians, though, we, we don't really fear death. We may fear the process of dying, but not death itself, because it's really not a termination. It's simply a commencement, a, a translation into a far better world. I think what's really interesting about this is that between verses 15 and 21, we have the events we just talked about. And, and verse 22 says, now Joseph stayed in Egypt. And we don't realize, unless we think about this for a little while, that between verse 21 and verse 22 is the passage of 60 years approximately. We just kind of leap ahead 60 years about which the scripture is silent. And again, as I've mentioned before, scripture is silent about large periods of time, not because nothing happened, but because God didn't have anything to say that he wanted to relate to the next generation to, to grant to us understanding of who he is and what he is about. Joseph's brothers' families continued to live on in the land of Goshen. I mean, you know, the years of famine are gone. Why are they still in Egypt? It was only seven years of famine, and they were only there for four of the years, maybe four or five. What are they still doing here? Why are they still in the land of Goshen? They apparently, of course, found life a little bit more secure in Egypt than they assumed it would be in Canaan. After all, the patriarch of the clan is gone. So why didn't they return to the land promised by God to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, and through Jacob to them? This was to be their land. Why are they, therefore, still in Egypt? Well, I think one factor was that famine was more common in Canaan than it was in Egypt. Now, you and I have very little experience with famine. We read about it. We know it exists. And hopefully we contribute to some of those organizations that are trying to alleviate, fam alleviate famine in various parts of the world. But most of us have never probably experienced famine directly. I mean, if we've chosen to be famished, that's because we've chosen to be famished for a period of time, and maybe that's good. But it's not because, probably not because, we couldn't eat if we wanted to. But famine was a very real thing to these people. And Canaan was entirely dependent upon local rainfall. Now, Israel's a different land today. The Israelis have built a magnificent water distribution system to take water from the Sea of Galilee and distribute it even clear down into the Negev in the south. And the Israelis have developed a concept called fertigation whereby you, you drip to the very roots of a plant uh, a measured amount of water and fertilizer to produce the maximum growth in a totally arid situation otherwise. But in the day we're talking about they had to depend on the rainfall. If the rains fell, the crops grew. If the rains didn't fall, the crops died. Egypt is different, though. Egypt is dependent upon the Nile. 
And the sources of the Nile are found in far wetter places to the south. Egypt, dur during the many millennia before they started building barrages and dams across the river, was totally dependent upon what is called basin irrigation, which means the water goes out of the river and, and floods the great area. And, and they did dike it off so that the water would stay on the fields uh, until the silt was all dropped out before they drained it back into the river. But that they didn't have canal systems and they didn't have dams to, to perennially, perennially irrigate the land. They had to depend on that seasonal, you know, late summer, early fall flooding of the river. But that almost always happened. And even if it didn't, there was still water there. The Nile was still flowing. It may not have flooded this year, but there is still water in the river. And it could sustain life. Now, Egypt, if it were not for the river, would be non-existent except as part of the Sahara Desert. Because other than a few oases scattered around in the land of Egypt, the Nile is the source. It just plain doesn't rain much in Egypt. I think I mentioned this to you before. When we were in Cairo, one of the most impressive things was how dirty the leaves of the trees were. It's a dusty place. The dust blows up and settles on the leaves and it never rains to wash them off. You wonder how photosynthesis even goes on, you know, through all that dirt. But somehow it manages to, I guess. I, I don't know if you can picture this, and I, I thought about putting together a map, but I didn't have time to do this because I thought of it too late. But if you can kind of picture uh, the Nile River, which flows northward uh, out of the tropical region into the Sahara Desert and, and to the Mediterranean, the, the Nile has two main branches. They come together right around Khartoum, which is the capital of the Sudan. Uh, one branch is the Blue Nile, and it flows out of the Ethiopian highlands. And Ethiopia gets late uh, summer rains and so forth, and those rains come, and off this 10, 15,000 foot high plateau, the water runs into Lake Tana, and from Lake Tana it goes out through the Blue Nile. And the Blue Nile carries this, it, it's what carries the floodwaters. The measurements have been made, and over the course of an entire year, 60% of the flow of the Nile comes from the Blue Nile, but it tends to come in just a short period of time. The White Nile, which is the main Nile which comes out of Lake Victoria, is fed by this vast reservoir. Lake Victoria is, the, in surface area, the second largest lake on the surface of the Earth, if you exclude all the salty bodies of water like the Caspian Sea. Uh, lake, Victoria, uh, lake Superior has a larger surface area than Victoria, but no other lake does. And, and from this great reservoir, you, you feed the White Nile. And, and so water is constantly flowing from Lake Victoria down the White Nile, and the water that uh, feeds Lake Victoria comes from the surrounding basin. And the ultimate source are the glaciers up on the Ruwenzori Range which, by the way, was only discovered a little over 100 years ago. That, that is by Europeans, anyway. The local natives knew it was there, but th this great range of mountains is, is a fantastic range of mountains because, because they're located very near the equator, and they rise right out of the tropical rainforest to glaciers at the height, at the top. 
There was an article in National Geographic a while back talking about the Ruin Zori, and it showed a, a man uh, on top of the Ruin Zori, standing in the glaciers. He had climbed to the top, and he was in a full, you know, climbing outfit, mask, and all this heavy stuff, and looking out across the tropical rainforest of the Congo Basin. <laughs> Quite a contrast. But, but from those glaciers comes the basic water, which, which feeds Lake Victoria, in addition to other sources. And, and that provides the, the runoff for the White Nile. And it's pretty regular, pretty regular. So the White Nile flows relatively consistently all year long. And that provides the basic water. Now, unless there is a massive uh, drought in the uh, basin around Lake Victoria, or unless God has intervened, as he obviously did in the story we read about in Genesis, the Nile always flows. And that's why you have the, one of the oldest civilizations on, on the surface of this planet, a civilization that goes back 6,000 years nearly, because that river always flowed. So it was easier to stay in Canaan, I mean in Egypt, than to go back to Canaan, because you've always got water here at least, whereas in Canaan you might not. A second reason that the brothers hadn't returned to Canaan was that Joseph was prime minister of the land. Why not ride his coattails? I mean, the privilege rubbed off on them. Oh, you're the brother of Joseph. Let me show you this. Let me give you that. You know, I mean, <laughs> it's kind of like having a, you know, a, a carte blanche wherever you went to be related to Joseph. And so they were politically and socially, economically safe in Egypt. Why go to Canaan where you've got to deal with the Canaanites who might not look upon you so favorably? And then lastly, they didn't leave because God had said they wouldn't leave until his time for them to leave. And let me just uh, read that passage, remind us of it again in Genesis chapter 15, verse 13. And God said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. And as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation they shall return here, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete." So why were they still in Egypt? Because God had a bigger plan than just where his people were going to live for the moment. And there are significant ramifications from that. Why are we in this particular situation when we think God could put us in a better situation? Because maybe God's not ready to move us to that other situation yet. Because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete, whatever that might mean in our situation. We have to believe that God is looking at the big picture and, and he has this plan. And sometimes we don't really understand his plan and we can figure we know a little bit better than God about how, what our situation ought to be like. And I'm sure after slavery began to be characteristic for the Israelis, the, the, the Hebrew people, that they began thinking, why didn't we go back to Canaan? That's the promised land. Why are we in this place? But the iniquity of the Amorite was not yet complete. In other words, God was given to the people who lived in Canaan 
400 more years to turn from their wicked ways to the God of the universe. But he knew they wouldn't. And so he was allowing them 400 years to, for that iniquity to come to that point where God's judgment could be delivered. And so he would. And he would bring his people in and destroy the Canaanites. Well, I think we better stop there. And uh, next week we'll finish. The week after that, we're going to look at the land we've been talking about, Egypt as well as Israel, uh, in pictures.